This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. So, um, last week I probably uh, laid a dozen different koans on you from, <laughs> from this very interesting section of the early lineage that would lead to Rinzai. And this is pretty early, so the teachers uh, I've been investigating in my own study and started to share with you yesterday are uh, Mazu, Nanchuan, and Zhaozhu. Those were all great teachers. Um, not exactly our lineage, but certainly you know right in the heart of Zen. And they um, had some interesting and complicated teachings about the nature of mind, about Buddha nature, and uh, the nature of the way, what practices. So I want to continue to explore that a little today. <coughs> I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think It was uh, William James who said that Buddhism is either the most psychological of all the religions or the most religious of all the psychologies. And it is sometimes hard to tell what it is. And this lineage that I'm talking about, Mazu, Nachuan, Chaozhu, um, you'll see what James meant in the study of them, because they, they do take a very, in a way, psychological approach, or at least embedded in their teaching, is uh, uh, a sublime psychology, what it is to be a human being and what it is to have human mind. Um, you might remember uh, Mazu, uh, one generation back. His teacher was Nan Yue. And uh, uh, one day Nan Yue came up to Mazu while he was doing Zazen and said, uh, what is your intention in sitting Zazen? And uh, Mazu said, well, my intention is to become a Buddha. I won't give you the whole story of what happened. Most, most of you probably know it. But Mazu, ra uh, Nanyue raises the question with Mazu, how would it be possible to become a Buddha by having the intention of becoming a Buddha? Just by sitting and having the intention of becoming a Buddha. How, do, how would it be possible to become a Buddha? And it's interesting because the fundamental point in that exchange between Nanyue and Mazu was that we cannot manifest or realize Buddha nature by trying to be somewhere else or someone else. So Mazu, who had the intention, I'm going to become a Buddha, as if Buddha was something out there, you know, a year or a lifetime or an aeon away. This school was very clear, you know, 
Becoming a Buddha has nothing to do with being any place but here. And so psychologically, the intention of someday I will awaken um, is probably the wrong path because it takes us away from being here, being present. Uh, one way to think about it is that the teaching from Nanue Tomazu was that trying, effort, would probably obscure the way rather than reveal it. Nanue had used with Mazu the image of, of, of a mirror as Buddha mind. And his message really was that trying to be something else, something other than you are, will obscure the mirror. It will cloud the mirror rather than polish it and reveal it. The mirror is not something in the future. The mirror is an image of uh, the unclouded Buddha mind. It is not something in the future, but it is something right now. It's already here. Actually, in studying this, I realized that if Mazu had really been on top of it, it was a great move that was available to him while Nanue was teaching him. Nanue grabbed a tile and he started rubbing it with a stone. And he, he said, I'm polishing this tile to make a mirror. Which, of course, cannot be done, right? You can't rub a tile with a stone. But it was an image for what Mazu was doing. You know, Mazu was sitting and polishing this tile in order to make a mirror. But when Nanue rubbed a stone on a tile, Mazu saw, okay, it's not possible. You can't, this is not how a mirror is made. So after uh, Nanue had conveyed that to him, I think the thing Mazu should have done is he should have picked up a mirror and started rubbing it with a stone. <laughs> <laughs> because the teaching really was, mirror is here already. And if we do something to try to improve it, we'll just obscure it. And if you polished a mirror, polished a mirror with a stone, you just make scratches on it, right? So I think Mazu could have conveyed to Nanue, okay, I get it, by kind of shifting his metaphor a little bit. But the teaching is that um, the activity of so-called mind can actually obscure the truth. Right? We, if we feel we have to be there, it's going to blind us to the truth of, of right here. But this is a complicated teaching lineage. And there's also the teaching in this lineage that this mind is the truth. So this teaching, mind could obscure the truth, but also that this mind is the truth. So what Mazu taught this very mind is Buddha mind. And he said, You who seek Dharma should actually seek nothing. Apart from mind, there is no other Buddha. Apart from Buddha, there is no other mind. Do not grasp what is good or reject what is bad. The myriad forms of the entire universe 
are the seal of the single dharma. Things just as they are are the mark of the dharma. Whatever forms are seen are but the perception of mind, but mind is not independently existent. It is codependent with form. So this is teaching of Mazu, which is um, that the dharmas, just as they are, our perception, our experience of the world, the phenomena of the world, just as they are, are the way. And you should seek nothing other than this very mind. also said this. He said, uh, the grasping of the truth, the, the realization of the truth, is a function of everyday mindedness. So, sometimes that might be translated as ordinary mind, but I like this. It's a function of everyday mindedness. Everyday mindedness is free from intentional action, free from concepts of right and wrong, taking and giving, the finite or the infinite. All our daily activities, walking, sitting, standing, lying down, all our responses to situations, our dealings with circumstances as they arrive, all this is the way. So this is important. Um, he, he does take the viewpoint that his teacher Nanui took, which is that uh, everyday mindedness, which is free from intentions and free from uh, grasping and free from ideas of right and wrong or, or pure and uh, impure, that is the way. That it's interesting to call that everyday mindedness because usually our everyday mind is full of intentions and judgments and so he's pointing to something that maybe lays behind or at the base of our typical intentions and preferences, right? And saying that mind is everyday mind. In a way, he's saying, that's not fancy mind, that's not theoretical mind, that's not the mind that analyzes things, it's just the mind of everydayness. Dogen later said, moving forward in practice is a matter of everydayness. And, he says, that our response to situations, the way we uh, respond to conditions and relate to them and conform to them. This is really the way. So our complete responsiveness to what's right here in front of us is the way. This is a very fluid situation because conditions are always changing. Um, and so complete responsiveness to conditions would involve being attuned with the change that's going on all the time. Not getting caught up in our ideas, which are kind of fixed, 
about what's here. Really flowing with the moment that's here. And in this flow of responsiveness to conditions, it's an interesting feature, and that is self is not really fully differentiated from other because they're changing together in response to each other. Both self and other, as we respond to the conditions that are right here, are harmonized, they're integrated with each other. We know when they're not integrated because, you know, we might have an idea of the permanence of what's here. And then we're a couple steps out of pace with what's actually happening in front of us, which is constantly changing. It's hard to see sometimes when we're really responding to conditions and when we're trying to make the world respond to our ideas of what it should be like. I mean, we do have so many preferences that we don't quite see the world as it is. So we imagine that it's what we imagine it to be. But there's a way that we could drop that imagination and be responsive to it just as it is. And this is easiest for us to see in our sitting practice, in our satsang. Because what do we do with satsang? We, we really drop our intentions. So it's not a matter of manipulating the world to be this way or that way. It's just opening up to the universe as it is. And it's easy to see us then as kind of flowing with it. You know, a million things might pass through our minds, or our awareness in, in Zazen. And in Zazen, we just kind of go with it. Something's happening in Zazen that is um, painful or hurtful. Maybe thought or a memory comes up that evokes emotional pain, or maybe, you know, food is falling asleep. We, we just flow with it. You could say we really are responsive to it if it comes up, not in the sense of uh, making it be any different, but really being responsive with kindness to any distress that comes up. But our Zazen has no intention other than just to be here and to flow with conditions. Dogen called it Jijuyu Zamai. Oh, Dogen, by the way, is a great Japanese teacher from 13th century who was the founder of our school in Japan. So I talk about him a lot. Uh, he called our Zazen Jijuyu Zamai, which means um, the samadhi or the meditative state of enjoying the self, of self enjoyment. Or another way to talk about it is the samadhi of receiving and using the self. This is a samadhi in which our normal ideas about self and other are not really very important. Because in this samadhi, the universe arises. And it arises as the self. And it's indistinguishable from, you know, any internal ideas. In fact, inner and outer don't really make any sense in Jujuyusamai. So our sitting 
can actually just be enjoying the coming and going of, of the universe. And so we can kind of see, considering how the way is really flowing with conditions. Because that's what we do in our zazen. It's harder for us to see that like in the middle of daily life, because mostly in the middle of daily life we're not flowing with conditions. We're trying to arrange things so that they conform to our idea of, you know, how we want them to be. So in standing and walking and lying down, in real life, there can be some pretty uh, obvious uh, conflicts between our intentions and our preferences and desires and our responsiveness to conditions. Our desires can be strong and they don't let us really flow with the way life comes to us. Yesterday uh, I was working on my talk and um, gone downstairs to get a snack. So I got my snack. And you know, I was full of ideas for the talk, so I was bustling back upstairs. But as I walked out of the pantry into the kitchen, I noticed there were some crumbs on the floor and they had been kind of uh, shoved underneath the cabinet so you couldn't see them unless you were really in the spot that I was in. <laughs> I won't say who left the crumbs. <laughs> 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 I couldn't see them at all. <laughs> I know, you couldn't see them. And I had just been, you know, writing this section about being responsive to conditions. And I thought, here's a chance for the Buddha way right here. That even though I have this intention, you know, here's a condition that obviously is requiring something of me. So let me be responsive to it. So I saw the crumbs. At first I thought, oh, I could ignore them. <laughs> but I thought, no, no, you know, I should live what I teach. <laughs> so I went back into the pantry and I got the, uh, the dustpan and the broom. Fine, right? Simple. Except in pulling the broom out from where it was resting, the mop that was resting against the broom <laughs> fell. And then a bunch of uh, stor storage containers that had been somehow resting against the mop also fell. And so then I was involved in this <laughs> elaborate process of starting to do one thing and then having to respond to this condition and this condition because all the conditions were changing all the time. All of this was totally not in, within my intention of going back to write a Dharma talk about being responsive to conditions. Right? And I see, I saw, you know, why are we tempted not to really pay attention to the world? Tempted to pay attention to the world, not to pay attention to the world, because if we do, it will ask something of us. But that may not be what our agenda is. In fact, it probably isn't what our agenda is. So, our intentions, our needs, and our desires will very often cause us to ignore where we really are, to ignore right here in favor of some idea about where we want to be. And of course, this is not the Buddha way. And it's not our practice. Our practice is to be with what is right here. And to respond to it. Not just to be here as a witness. Well, in Sazen it feels a little bit like that. We're just kind of 
witnessing. But not really. Even in Zazen, we're responding to each thing that comes up. And the effort in our practice is to see what's right here clearly as a whole and to be with it. And certainly not to obscure it with our ideas about what should be here. One, uh, one day, uh, Mazu was with his students. Um, Nanchuan was one of the students. And so was Bai Zhang, who was a great famous teacher, and Ji Dang. So one evening, the monks Ji Dang, Bai Zhang, and Nanchuan were ver- viewing the moon with Master Mazu. must have been a fool. The master asked them, at just this moment, what is it? Great, great question. What is it? And Shidang said, perfect support. Baijang said, perfect practice. Nanchuan shook out his sleeves and walked away. He was a devil, that Nanchuan. <laughs> so Imazu said, uh, so you know, monks' robes have very long sleeves, right? So he kind of, before you, you know, move or change your position, you might shake out your sleeves, fold them correctly so, so that they're, you're, you're dressed right when you walk. So that's what Nanchuan did. He shook out his sleeves and he walked away. And Mazu said, talking about his three different students, a sutra enters the Buddhist canon. Zen returns to the sea. But only Nanchuan has gone beyond things. So it's nice, you know, he doesn't devalue what his students have said. First of all, he says, this is important. The sutra comes into the Buddhist canon. Uh, canon. What Bhaijan said, Zen returns to the sea. But Nantran, he said, he's not caught up in his ideas about things. Nantran has gone beyond. And in a way, this is what we strive to do in our practice on a regular moment, to go beyond things, to go, by things I mean our idea of things, and to go beyond that, to open up to what else might be there. So Nanchuan had this teaching. The arising in mind of a single thought gives birth to the myriad things. Once we start thinking, once we start categorizing, analyzing, and and conceptualizing the world, the myriad things come forward. Before we do that, before we start breaking things down, 
The world is just the flow of the universe. But once we start conceptualizing it, then all the things come forward as individual things, which they're not. Therefore, some old worthy said, it's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not a thing. Talking about what is true reality. It's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not a thing. Thus, he said, we just teach you, brethren, to go on a journey. Isn't that great? This is a teacher who knew what had to be taught. Not, this is the right way to look at things. But what we teach you is to go on a journey. In other words, to be in your life completely. Not to say that the journey is easy. We can mistake you know, our intellectual questioning and analysis for a journey. And so we're not really journeying in, in the way Nantuan says. I would say, as long as we're here, as long as we're just right here, that the journey that Najwan is talking about will simply unfold, and we will be present with it. This is not a journey of intention to go someplace else. This is just a journey of being here, and the way unfolds in front of us. We don't have to find it. It reveals itself, if we can be here. But as soon as we get really in a, involved in our ideas of what should be happening, our ideas of what the way it is like, then we're kind of in trouble. And so uh, Nanchuan student, Zhao Zhu, said, a metal Buddha does not withstand the furnace. A wooden Buddha does not withstand the fire. A mud Buddha does not withstand water. It's great. Of course, we want to think of the Buddhas as withstanding anything, right? But a wooden Buddha does not withstand fire. Metal Buddha does not withstand the furnace. Meaning, once we cast our ideas, we rigidify our ideas about anything, even about practice, even about Dogen's teaching about practice, if we have a rigid idea of what practice is, it's going to break down. It can't. There will be something it can't withstand, whether it be a sadness that arises from inside or a situation outside that we need to deal with. Any rigid idea about anything won't really hold up. So Zhao Xu said, the genuine Buddha sits within you. Bodhi and Nirvana and true thusness and Buddha nature, all of, all of our holy concepts, right? These things are just clothes stuck to the body, and they are known as afflictions. So, so this is her heretical, right? 
But it's really saying all of our concepts, all of our ideas about what is right and holy separate us from the way. In fact, one of the other teachings was that uh, um, the way is not difficult. Practicing the way is not difficult as long as we can avoid picking and choosing. But as soon as ideas of right and wrong arise, then the way is lost in confusion. I think we can see this, actually, in our daily lives. Uh, when you think about, well, what is it that's vexatious in your life, right? It probably has something to do with some ideas of right and wrong, some ideas of what's better and what's worse. Some ideas about gaining and losing, or liking and disliking. You know, our life is unfolding, inevitably, constantly. And we have to ask ourselves, do we really want to create a soundtrack to this amazing life? A soundtrack that's full of worry and doubt and judgments? If we don't, then it's worthwhile to try and let go of our intentions and our preferences, at least from time to time, so that we can be here with what is. Our job, Zen students, is to be here for the unfolding of here. Not just as witnesses to it, but as Buddhas, as Bodhisattvas responsive to what it needs from us. Contributing whatever we can that is helpful and in some measure kind to sentient beings and to the great earth. Our job is to be like expert musicians. You know, when you're a beginner musician, if you're learning to play an instrument, maybe you've mastered something. But it's effortful. You're still thinking about, uh, let's see, what position should my thumb be in, uh, back of the neck, and you know, how far is it from first position to fourth position? And, and there's a lot to think about. And you're kind of self-absorbed, right? Because you're really trying to get it right. But when you watch expert and you listen to expert musicians, they're putting in some kind of individual effort for sure, but that effort is completely blended with the effort of the, the other musicians. Beginners can't do that, right? Because too much of their brain power is going into how do I do this, you know? But experts who, who know how to do this can let that go. Let that take care of itself, as it were. And listen to what their colleagues in the orchestra are doing. The experts can hear the other musicians and can harmonize with them. And somehow for them, 
Individual effort does not obscure their participation in the whole. Mostly for us, as regular people, our individual effort does obscure our participation in the whole. We don't even see the whole. It takes like years of zazen practice, even to glimpse, oh, there is a hole there that includes everything, including me. And the teaching in this school has been individual effort will in fact obscure the way. But with maybe trust in our practice, with trust in the way, we could open up to the way as it is and be responsive to that. And that is what our zazen is about. Uh, one quote. This is from a person much later in this lineage. His name was Albert Einstein. <laughs> he said, he was writing a letter to a friend of his whose child had died. He said, a human being is a part of the whole called by us universe a part that's limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feeling, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion, he said, of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for the very few persons are nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Einstein also said, the striving to free oneself of this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish the delusion, but to try to overcome it is the way to, to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. So you see why I say he was an iteration of this lineage. This, what he said could have been said by the Buddha. Open to uh, thoughts or questions or discussion. It's hard to say anything after a quote like that. How can you? <laughs> I know. I, I should have saved it till after the discussion. <laughs> that could have been the cherry on top. <laughs> no words. Yeah. Right. I mean, what else is there to say, right? Yeah. 
Um, I, I appreciated the part about like the journey not being about going somewhere. It's about being here. Just something I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> like I know it. Yes. <laughs> we talk about it a lot. Right. Uh, and I just it's it's the part of practice that's most important to me because my mind goes all over the place always. I'm like, oh yeah, I practice mindfulness. I sit with the sangha. I do this. I do that. But really, like. I get, definitely get caught up in being two or three moves ahead, sure, and forget to come just be here. Yeah, and that being that the practice and the, and the journey. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is that being here is not static, no. because this is not you know, static at all. It's it's moving. Yep. So being here is to be with this changing universe. Mm-hmm. There's a stability in it, even though it's not static, right? Mm-hmm. And that stability is just what you were talking about. My mind wants to go here and it wants to go there, and I bring myself back. I mean, anytime something scary happens to us, right? Or something that might turn out bad happens. And, you know, we're 10 steps of our, ahead of ourselves in a moment, in a flash. Especially when it's about something, you know, unpleasant. You you can hardly think of a worse way to live your life than when something that might be unpleasant (laughs) is possible. We pay attention to all the unpleasantness that could happen. Right? That doesn't sound like practice. So we should be glad that we have this practice to keep us here so that we can watch this real life unfold. ago I had a difficult conversation with a family member confrontation um, that had been long brewing you know years and I had a lot of resistance on my part in the past to sort of trying to get things my way um, but I it finally happened and it wound up it went well and the, I remember kind of having the sense that I kind of popped out of the situation for a minute and it was kind of like I could conceive of it as sort of like turning the wheel, kind of, of uh, like a certain Dharma or samsara. The sort of like, for the longest time, it was like, no, I don't want to play that game. But then it it seemed like, oh, it was inevitable, like it had to be played. And so there was the sense that it was like, um, there, 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 there seems to be this. Um, interplay between this yeah. hesitance to sort of like be live you live your life yeah and that uh, maybe in some way thinking like well I don't want to perpetuate anything I don't want right. to engage in any kind of dramatic anything I don't want to yeah. try it it's like you like you can maybe convince yourself sometimes like well I don't I, I, I don't I won't try and have the world my way maybe I just won't you know you sorry maybe you sit back anything like I'll be a good Zen student. Yeah. I won't try and have anything my way. <laughs> but it, when it seems like sometimes it actually is your role to play to yeah. try and shape things in your way. Yeah. Like especially if you think about 
wider things, maybe politics or anything like that. Like you, it kind of reminds me of the title of the Category Hershey book that you have to say you something. You have to say something. You have to do something sometimes. And sometimes we see an opportunity to do something that we could actually say is kind, or we could actually say this might, you know, have a positive impact on sentient beings. And so then it's good to grab hold of the wheel. But I think you're right. Sometimes we just have to not, because the only thing we could do would be to act out of our conditioning, to, you know, not really to be responsive to the conditions, but to be attacking or battling. Tolkien said, sometimes we turn the Dharma wheel, and sometimes the Dharma wheel turns us. <laughs> so, so either is good, right? Maybe it feels more secure to be turned by the Dharma wheel than, than we know it depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends. <laughs> this week about um, Martin Luther King and sort of relates to that, the internal dialogue I was having as, um, as you were speaking about, um, I have excellent ideas about how the people around me should behave every yeah. day. <laughs> really <laughs> excellent ideas. Me too, yeah. And if they would just anticipate them and I didn't have to tell them so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> so it's between that, understanding that, the need to, or the desire to pull back from that and let the Dharma wheel turn me. And also um, thinking about social change in politics and admiring people who uh, had a kind of stubbornness in writing a review of the prison letters of Nelson Mandela. So Mm -hmm. relates as well. But I was thinking as, as, as I stepped back from that internal dialogue and began listening to you, I was thinking about even with King in the middle of the struggle, he keeps saying he's already been to the mountaintop. He doesn't say, I'm going to get there with you. In fact, he says, I won't. <laughs> And there are all these letters from Mandela that I've been reading in which he says, today I'm on top of the world. He's, he's sitting in a space yeah. that's about as large as those two pillows, right? And he writes to Wayne, I'm, today I'm on top of the world, and recollects something that happened. Um, so anyway, those two, two pieces of it connect for me. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, it's wonderful to have those models for us in our lives. We were both, obviously, models of people who knew what the real world was like and who found a way to, you know, be responsive to it that didn't damage it. We could all aspire to that. Thanks for your participation.